Rockabye baby, daddy's awake. When he comes home, hard cider he'll swig. When he has swug, he'll fall in a snoo. And down will come Tyler and Tippy Canoe. The sovereignty of the Union is a work of art. The sovereignty of the states is natural. It exists by itself without effort, like a father's authority in the family. People feel the sovereignty of the Union only as it impinges on the few great interests. It represents a vast, remote fatherland, a vague and undefinite sentiment. The sovereignty of the states, in, is in, in a sense, envelops each citizen and affects every detail of his daily life. It is responsible for safeguarding his property, his liberty, and his life. Its influence on his well-being or misery is never-ending. The sovereignty of the states is sustained by memories, habits, local prejudices, regional and familiar self-interests. In short, by all the things that make a patriotic instinct such a powerful force in the heart of man, how can one doubt its advantages? So uh, that is Tocqueville's summary of his views of, of federalism in the U.S. federal constitution. We're going to talk about that today. So welcome uh, back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be continuing our look at Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Um, we're going to look at the whole thing, both volumes, um, over the next few episodes. And this, this episode, we'll look at chapters 6, uh, 7, and I think 8. Let me double check. Uh, yeah, 6, 7, 8 of part 1 of, vol of, of volume 1 of, of Democracy in America. So the first quarter will be done in this, this episode. These chapters deal mostly with the federal constitution. In the first episode on, of this series, we looked at Tocqueville's view of overall democracy in America and the quality of conditions and what it meant. We looked at his concept of popular sovereignty and what, and what that meant. And then we looked at the governance in the community, in the town, and in the state. Um, and as we saw in that quote, I just uh, pulled out that Tocqueville saw that that is a natural kind of political loyalty emerging out of people's conditions is where governance really takes place. So then what's the point of the union? What's the point of the federal government? This is, of course, a longstanding question in American politics, and we can only uh, begin to touch on, on it and even only touch on what Tocqueville's full view of this is. But um, these are the chapters where Tocqueville takes on the U.S. Constitution. Now, they're a little bit drier and not as interesting as some of the other parts of the book. I actually think this book really shines in the second volume when he really gets to, to sentiments and morality. Um, the, the first part is a, the first volume. The entirety of the first volume is a lot more on kind of the institutions of, of, of democracy. Um, the later heart, a little bit more on the mind, the sentiment, the intellectual life of, of, of people in a democracy. But nevertheless, I think chapter six, seven, and eight have a lot to to teach us and a lot to inform us. And um, uh, let's let's get into it. So uh, most of this section, this hundred pages or so, is, consists of chapter eight, which is the federal constitution. Um, but six and seven are are much shorter, but they also deal with with um, broader national political issues. He's kind of moved away after chapter six, looking at the state state governments and, and moved on to, to talk about more national issues. And so chapter six is called On Judicial Power in the United States and its Effect on Political Society. 
So he starts out saying that judges in America are, are pretty much like judges everywhere else and that they, they take cases, they, they kind of uh, address grievances, but there's something really fundamentally different about the judicial system and judicial power in the United States. And that is simply that um, American judges can interpret the Constitution, right? They don't just apply the law, right? Other judges in other countries may have their hands bound by the law and have to just merely interpret and implement the law itself without getting to the fundamental law. In the United States, um, it's, the, it's the fundamental law that is by which we judge the, the law itself. Of course, this is, you know, grade school physics, or not physics, civics, uh, for anyone who was raised in the United States. But um, here, Tocqueville sees it a really define something that really defines it. Maybe we take it more f for granted now globally because there are more states that have fundamental law. Um, you know, at the time, you know, the United States was one of the first to have a constitution like this, and, and it spread from there. Now, now, of course, many, many, um, most countries have a have a written constitution. Um, but I can't really speak about the judicial system in any of them. He thinks it's really something special that. The Constitution is the foundation of judicial decision rather than laws. But this poses a bit of a problem, and that is where is true kind of legislative authority in, in the country? He, he compares this system to that which exists in France, writing, If courts in France could disobey laws on the grounds that they found them unconstitutional, constituent power would really be in their hands, since they alone would have the rights to interpret a Constitution whose terms no one else could change. They would therefore set limits in the place of the nation and dominate society insofar, at least as the inherent weakness of the judicial power allowed. In that, in a in a in a country like France, where the constitution is more um, rigid, um, judges would then have basically all legislative power because you know legislatures could pass laws, but courts could just merely ignore them. So one result of this is it sort of. Uh, can allow laws to be nullified over time, right? Gradually, and a judge can ignore a law and it on its own maybe doesn't change much, but other judges will then repeatedly come to the same conclusion and it'll get worn down and, and lose its effect. So ultimately he includes this as a, as a good thing because it, it, it basically limits, um, it provides what it calls a barrier against the tyranny of political assembly. So of course it, it, it contributes to this division of power ideas, but compared to, to systems where the law is absolute, Right and judges then just become agents of the state. This this has more people informing on on, on the law itself. It also means that law won't be strictly in the realm of politics too. It won't be now we can judge how politicized courts are in the United States. That's uh, not something he takes for granted here. Is that they're rather neutral, but uh, you know you'll without this then law every law will have to be duked out politically in politics, and this is itself kind of a disruptive force in his view. Now, another very important aspect of the judicial system for Tocqueville is the fact that it can you can bring charges against the government itself, and you can challenge executive power and, and public officials down from the local dock catcher up to, up to the president. Now, is this good or bad, right? Well, I guess you could say, well, this is just going to make a very litigious society, right, where everyone who doesn't, you know, agree with their their officials is going to, you know, pass a lawsuit against them. But he says, no, that's not the case. That's not what he saw in America. Instead, what he sees is a greater, he sees a lot of respect for public officials because they're subject to censure and because that means that public officials then have to consider their opinion and, and, and you know, 
address themselves to the people they're serving. And so you actually get less need for this because of the threat of it. And it kind of works aside elections because in the monarchical system, the only way to get rid of an official is to basically have him kicked out by the king and that's, or someone higher up, and that itself is a politically disruptive and destabilizing event. Elections, court cases aren't. They're, they're just uh, what happens every day in a, in a society. Um, so it's a very short chapter, merely 10 pages or so on the judicial, judicial system. Now he'll talk about judges from time to time in other parts of the book, but that really sums up what he thinks the importance of, of courts are. Um, chapter 7 then is called On Political Judgment in the United States. Now what does he mean by this? It's, it's kind of getting at the kind of a value, kind of like with like popular sovereignty. It's a short chapter talking about a big idea. Well, it's, he's not really talking here about the judgment of political values or the, or the way people make political judgments. He means it actually quite literally. It's when political institutions judge others. or It's when some representative body, um, like Congress or a state legislature, uh, you know, acts as a, as a judge, right? This becomes another, ch another check on the, on the corrupt official, right? Impeachment. Essentially, this is the chapter on, on impeachment. Um, now, the contrast here, again, with, with Europe, particularly with France, but to a lesser degree, England, is that political judgments are, do exist, right? Kings will, kings make law, or, you know, and kings also um, will, can punish, can, can levy political judgments, right? But again, this becomes like a, a destabilizing and a, and, a, and a major political act um, where basically the, the, the by the, the king or the one making this political judgment becomes judge, jury, and executioner all in one, right? What happens in political judgment in the United States, in Tocqueville's view, is essentially impeachment then becomes purely the political judgment. It, it stops there. It doesn't go beyond that. It doesn't become um, like, so the example would be a president commits some high crime. He's impeached by the legislature. He's still a free man right now. Later on, maybe a, a policeman can, can arrest him or something. But there's a separation of the political judgment and the and the kind of the, the legal judgment of a, of a criminal act i guess the criticism of this be isn't that weakening the the checks and balances so why not give congress the power to be you know the jury and the executioner the punisher and he writes this if the principal aim of the american lawmakers had really been to arm the political body with great judicial power they would not have limited the purview of that body to public officials because the most dangerous enemies of the state may not hold office this is true especially in republics where power stems primarily from the favor of political parties and man is often all the more formidable because he exercises no legal power of any kind if american lawmakers had wanted to invest society itself with the power to ward off great crimes as judges do by sowing fear of punishment sowing fear of punishment they would have allowed political tri tribunals to avail themselves of all the resources of the penal code. Instead, they equipped those tribunals with a less than adequate weapon, one ill-suited to dealing with the most dangerous of criminals. For what does banishing from politics signify to a person bent on overthrowing the law itself? Well, the answer is, it does still say, he's basically saying here it's weak, but the, the answer is you're taking away power. You're taking away their means of, of achieving their goals, right? Um, and that's enough. Well, um, still you'd say, well, 
this is kind of weak soup, right? We need a stronger hand, right? We need to like you know, throw these people in jail, these crooks in jail, rather than just taking away their 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 power. And again, he has a comparison with with England, with Europe in general, that I think is interesting. Uh, so in Europe, the removal of an official from office and his banishment from politics were among the consequences of the, his punishment. While in America, they were the punishment itself. This yields the following result. In Europe, political tribunals possess awesome powers, which in some cases they do not know how to use. And for fear of punishing too, they may not punish at all. In America, however, no one shrinks from imposing a punishment that does not cause humanity to moan. To condemn a political enemy to death in order to deprive him of power is in everyone's eyes a horrible crime of murder. To declare one's adversary unworthy of wielding that same power and to deprive him of it without depriving him of life and liberty may seem the fair outcome of the struggle. Now, this is followed then by chapter 8, which is a very, very long summary of the federal constitution. And maybe if you're reading this uh, rather loosely, you may say, well, I took civics, you know, or I took American history, I understand the constitution. This is for that French readers who don't understand the American constitution. And to be honest, some of this does is, is kind of the history of the constitution, how it came to be, uh, you know, the powers of the different branches of government, the difference between the Senate and the House of Representatives. And yeah, some of that does come off as just him educating his audience about the nature of the American constitution. Um, now, at the heart of it, though, of this cha chapter, he's, he's really comparing it a lot to France because France has this centralized state and the United States has a federal system, right? So he is sort of presenting an oddity to the French people and to his French to his readers about this federal system, right? And he's trying to show what's special and unique about it. Remember, Tocqueville, as much as he praises the American system of government, he has his questions and his criticisms and his concerns about it. So he's never a, you know, totally, you know, he's not waving the flag here. He, especially in the second half of the book, he, he really does see the, the problems in it. But in this part, he's, he's basically um, describing some of, some of its, how it came to be in some of its virtues, right? And I think some of his most interesting observations come from his commentary, for instance, on the election of the president, right? Um, and, and the kind of the, the genius of, of the executive branch in, in the United States. And what he sees is really kind of special about this is the fact that the presidency is a job that no one would would really fight to have. Right. And if you think about it in U.S. history, yes, there's been very contentious political debates. Right. There's been fighting over, you know, there's been contested election. There's been lawyers involved. There's been uh, mass movements associated with presidencies. Right. There's been dirty tricks. Uh, you know, even think of the Adams Jefferson, you know, election 1800 that was a really nasty election right we've had those throughout history the the kennedy nixon one was pretty nasty too so you have a lot of these people really do fight for it but there's a limit to how much they fight as far as i know there's never been a case of a politicians like going to the streets with like you know arm and arm populace to to put themselves into power right no one's been willing to really risk life and limb for the presidency and the question for Tocqueville is why not? Because this happens all the time in feudal Europe. This happens all the time even in, in modern Europe where you know, people seem to really covet power so much so that they'll, they'll kill and die for it. And why does that happen? Well, his answer is, uh, in, this is on page 144 in the Library of America version, quote, no one has yet been willing to risk life and honor to become president of the United States because the power of the presidency is merely temporary, limited, and dependent. 
Fortune must hold out an immense prize if it's to entice men upon a desperate adventure. No candidate has thus far been able to arouse ardent sympathies and dangerous popular passions. The reason for this is simple. Even if a man becomes the head of a government, he cannot reward his friends with much in the way of power, wealth, or glory, and his influence within the state is too feeble for any faction to feel that its success or ruin depended on its elevation to power. Right Now, that said, you do have things like the Civil War, where fear of federal power was so great that states left, fearing that um, the federal government would intervene in, in slavery. But that's a whole complicated story that, of course, Tocqueville wasn't um, privy to. And we're going to see later on how he does basically uh, see the roots of the American Civil War in, within American democracy. But um, this is one thing he, that I found very interesting that he highlights here about, like, why, is, why are politics... In, in democracies of such small stakes, right? You'd think because so much matters, everything is politicized in a democracy. And we saw that in the early chapters where, you know, you know, everyone, you know, people's lives are really shaped by politics, things that things really do affect them. There's not a, there's a, there's a, there's a lack of banality about politics in democracies because everyone's kind of participating and it really does shape people's lives, especially at the local state level. If you so then why not struggle for it if the stakes are that high and he just thinks that the power is not great enough to do that now there might be important decisions that need to be made and lost elections can be devastating to certain sectors of society but again there's never been a, a you know a, an insurrection over an election unless i'm missing something I, don't, I yeah i'm pretty sure there's nothing that would qualify as that in in american history you always hear about this you know if this guy gets elected, I'm going to flee, right? Or, or, you know, rumors that if Trump loses 2020, you know, he's going to go to the streets and get the militias to, to keep him in power. There's never been coups, though. I mean, there's just not the historical record to show that this, this happens. Now, he does look at, like, stable political systems as ones that in which individual leaders can't change that much, right? So the president can't, you know, he can do a little bit, but he's so checked, his power is so confined by these other, um, the separation of powers, which I, I hope I don't have to review with you. It's, it's something he, he, he lays out in this chapter. But because of that confinement of power, you have kind of a, uh, it doesn't really matter what one president did the next. And he compares this to like the Senate in Rome, right? Where the Senate, the councils would change every year, actually. You think, wow, that's got to be really destabilizing to have a new council every single year. But in effect, it didn't really matter because real true power was in the Senate, which was hereditary. So there was a continuity and power there. And he also talked about monarchies having that same thing. As long as when legislative power is in the monarchy, the monarchy is not going to change often, right? Once, a, once every generation. He even goes so far as to say that when there, the, the closest we get to a crisis is the election itself, um, where you know you have parties involved. But even there, he kind of takes the Madisonian line that that in a state like the United States, the parties would be so large and have such a you know a broad umbrella, combining so many different aspects of society. Quote the, that that you won't get it. Quote the. Because the country is so vast and its population is so dispersed, clashes between its various parties are less likely than they are elsewhere and also less perilous. The political circumstances under which elections have thus far been carried out have presented no real danger. All that notwithstanding, a presidential election in the United States may be looked upon as a time of national crisis. But here he's referring more to like the popular fervor, the, the, the passion for the election, the excitement, the, you know, the focus on the moment. And I think that's something that's continued in American politics, for better or for worse. This idea that, you know, this always waiting for the next election, this preparing for it. And it becomes this dramatic day in which, you know, 
you know, I know the media really exploits this, of course, for, for ratings on election night and running up to it. But uh, Tocqueville kind of sees it in the past, right? Every election is the most important election, as, as, as people are apt to say. Um, but as soon as the election is made, columns restored. People go back to normalcy until two years later, and then, you know, the candidates come out for the next, next round. Now, one more thing he says about the presidency is he talks about the re-election of the presidency. And he doesn't quite deal with the, the, the two-term thing, right? And the way that's been resolved in American history, of course, is Washington set a precedent of two terms that wasn't broken until FDR. And then when it was broken, um, Congress and the states quickly you know, made the two-term precedent of, of Washington um, the you know, fundamental law of the land. But he... You know, he does have a little bit of concern here uh, for for kind of the enduring politician and, and what might happen. Kind of like Jefferson had this fear, too, that that, that one person will will kind of take the office and, and stick with it for, for longer than he should. Um, he says, the principle of re-election, therefore, makes the corrupting influence of elective government more extensive and more dangerous. It tends to degrade the nation's political morality and to substitute shrewdness for patriotism. But even in this, he's not particularly too worried about because, he, as he sees it, the president at the end of the day is just a, a tool of the majority and, and really can't hold power. So even if he, he is elected and, and he does become like a permanent presence through re-election, he's always going to be subject to, to the majority's will. Right? And, and we can see plenty of career politicians who have changed their position uh, because of changing sentiment in the nation as a whole. So I think there's, there's evidence for this. Um, Truth in this. Um, it goes back and talks about the courts again. In the earlier part, he talks about uh, courts in general. Here he's talking about um, the court system as laid out in the federal constitution, particularly uh, the importance of the Supreme Court in, in the U.S. And the, and the various federal courts and various federal laws and how, and how they regulate federal laws. Now, it seems to me, I, you know, I, I reread this section and law stuff sort of bores me. Um, but... What he basically seems to be saying is this is the necessity in federalism because you're going to need these courts to deal with grievances between states or if a corporation is in one state and and uh, wants to set up another state, how do you work out those different charters and all that? So um, he sees it more as a necessity. But what's really struck him, though, was the what he quote, quote, the elevated rank of the Supreme Court among the great powers of the state. And he finds it almost unique. He, he can't think of any European state in which courts have been given any power to actually determine determine law and judge whether something can be, you know, even be law, right? Quote, the Supreme Court stands above any known tribunal, both by its nature of its powers and by the categories of parties subject to its jurisdictions. In all the civilized nations of Europe, governments have always been extremely reluctant to allow ordinary courts to decide questions bearing on government interests. Naturally, this reluctance is greater when the government is most absolute. By contrast, as liberty increases, the prerogatives of the courts steadily grow. Yet no European nation has yet reached the conclusion that every judicial question, no matter where it originates, it can be left to common law judges. So the way I read this is the solution to the problem, the fact that courts and judges, judicial judgment will be made by, you know, constitutionality will be determined by courts, it almost has to be a national institution that, that deems this um, to, again, regulate decisions made by lower courts. But he also sees a fundamental weakness in a, in a, in a system that requires this, but he doesn't see how a federal system or organized this way would weak 
presidents and and uh, you know a comparatively weak legislative body um, without a strong courts he doesn't see how it it could really survive he writes to conclude this section the root of the evil is not in the constitution of this power but in the constitution of the state itself which makes the existence of such a power necessary so what's the real advantage of the federal system for for Tocqueville's view he writes a whole section on this called On the Advantages of the Federal System in General and its Special Utility for America. Well, he starts out by talking about the, the, the problem of small nations. On the one hand, and this is, goes back to Enlightenment thinking, I, I, I reckon. You know, small nations have always been the center of, of liberty. The, the, a lot of the historical examples we've had of, of lib, li, you know, states with political liberty or republics have been small or direct democracy like in ancient Greece or the early Roman Republic. Um, the problem is uh, that also makes them more fragile to tyranny, right? Because it's easier to overturn them, and then that tyranny can become more oppressive in smaller states. Bigger states, you know, power gets just more diffused across the whole whole system. So it's it's harder in that case to be as authoritarian and that tyranny. Um, uh, so there's a tension here between liberty being the natural condition of small societies and um, and the, the relative ease of concentrating authority in a smaller society. So what does this matter for a, a federal system? Uh, and there's other advantages to the large society too, like ideas are shared, you got diversity, although he doesn't really talk directly about diversity, but I'm just kind of throwing it in there. Um, you know, there's kind of sort of other advantages one gets from being part of a large society that you would lose out if you're in a small, small state. So it goes back to like Montesquieu's kind of rubric of you know democracies are small republics bigger empire you know, monarchies and republic you know, empires are the biggest right well the importance of the republic here is it allows then americans to have the benefits of of liberty and 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 participatory governance at the state level but also a, then a federal power that can can check the passions of that same liberty and, and keep and, and ensure it it also gives the other advantage of being in a large society um, uh, he actually thinks he goes so far as to say that ambition for power is supplanted by love of prosperity, a more common passion, but a less dangerous one. In America, it's widely believed that the continued existence of Republican forms in the new world depend on the continued existence of the federal system. Right. So maybe that's just um, uh, whether true or not, it, you know, there, there might be some truth to it. Um, but the key is that in states, there are there, these are true experiments in Republican governance. Quote, there can be no doubt that in the United States, the taste for and experience of Republican government began in the towns, in a provincial assemblies. In a state like Connecticut, for example, where a great political issue might be the construction of a canal or a highway, where the state has no army to pay and no war to support and is incapable of bringing its leaders much in the way of wealth or glory, one can imagine nothing more natural or appropriate than the nature of things than a republic. Now that same Republican spirit with the same mores and habits of free people having arisen and flourished in the various states, later found it easy to establish themselves throughout the land. The public spirit of the Union itself was, in a sense, simply a concentrative form of provincial patriotism. Each citizen of the United States took the interest aroused by his little republic and carried it over into love of a common fatherland. In defending the Union, the citizen defended the growing prosperity of his own province, along with the right to govern its affairs and its prospects for winning approval of improvements likely to make him a wealthier man." End quote. Um, so yeah, he doesn't know about the Civil War. And, and where the, that, that tension seems to break down. But yeah, he sees uh, the smallness of the states still is the, in, the, in the communities, 
that he talked about earlier in part one are the best foundation for for republic but the union creates then a broader identity that 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 makes those republics at the local level more likely to endure and survive right like they're not going to have armies like athens had an army that could be co-opted or taken over or used by tyrants there's no such thing at the, at the state level really um that's that's handed over to the federal level right that the really corrupting forces get handed over to the to the federal government where power is is more diffused and, and and weaker so it's even like if you think about like the anarchist uh approach to to power right the higher up one goes you're supposed to make positions have less power and be more administrative right the lower you get the more local level that's where real power is right now this is of course before the u.s federal system government got all kinds of power that it you know that it took and of course hamilton if you if you're a Hamiltonian, you think that may have been the intention of the Constitution. If you're a Jeffersonian, you think that's overreach. But uh, nevertheless, the uh, the basic idea is that higher up, you make power more diffused and weaker, more administrative, um, maybe more essential, but not necessarily powerful in decision making. The real decision making happens at the local level, and that's a good model. I think you know whatever faults there are of the U.S. system of, of government. And its its history is full of um, plenty of, of, of heinous acts, um, to be sure. But I think this overall model of, of weakening power higher up is something that's still effective, and it's, it's what's one of the things that really attracted Tocqueville to the federal system. Well, is there anything bad about it? Well, he does think it it does lead to certain complexities, um, but that's really all he says here as a fault i mean at the same time he doesn't necessarily think it's for everyone he just thinks that it happens to be something that's 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 working in in america and and managing american democracy um so that's all i'm going to say about this section chapters uh six seven eight of of democracy in america um in the next episode i'm going to look at uh part two um begin looking at part two part two is a little longer it's uh, altogether 279 pages um, so one of these is going to have to be a long episode and the way I'm going to break this up is I'm going to do a shorter episode first looking at the theme of parties and democracy um, political factions and all that and then then I'll look at part four which is it's about 170 pages but it all deals with one theme and that's the threats to democracy um, so if you're reading ahead you want to look at chapters one through seven of part two of volume one um, of, of democracy in America. Um, the stuff dealing mostly with factions and parties and the majority rule and, and, and democratic governance. Um, so in the meantime, I'm sure I'm, I misinterpreted all kinds of th stuff in this section of, of de Tocqueville's work. So if you have any um, complaints or grievances or comments in general, please let me know what they are. Leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Thanks as always for listening, and I really look forward to hearing from you. Uh, so I'll see you next time with uh, the next section of my thoughts on Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Rock a bye, baby, when you awake, you will discover old tip is a fake. Far from the battle, a war cry and drum. He sits in his cabin drinking bad rum. <laughs>